Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, and welcome to Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Glad you're here. Happy you're listening. Thanks for joining me today. Well, energy continues to be a growing subject in our news, in our body of politics, in our culture. I mean, we're just starting to see more and more um, strains on society that seem to be related to energy. And there was a great exchange between our transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, and one of the finest people we have in Congress from Kentucky, a guy named um, Thomas Massey. I don't know what it is about uh, Kentucky. You know, they've been able to produce uh, Rand Paul and uh, in the Senate and then Thomas Massey in the House. And, and these guys are superb uh, statesmen. They're smart. They understand liberty. They understand the law. They understand, in Thomas Massey's case, I mean, he's a, an electrical engineering graduate from MIT. So he's brilliant in other ways even. So um, anyway, I just thought it was a great exchange. Um, I actually didn't hear the – I heard the exchange on a show I listened to, great show. For those of you that want to listen to it, it's called uh, Part of the Problem by Dave Smith. And actually I heard – Dave talking about and covering this this uh, clip and I thought man I want to do that on my show because this is something near and dear to my heart I think there's tremendous interventions into our market around this energy business uh, the likes of which we we don't even know yet I mean we we're not fully um, aware of the fallout that's going to happen as a result of our government's <clears throat> involvement in something as critical as energy. I've talked about on this show before that back before fossil fuels, really, um, people's energy was limited to what they could produce themselves. And in rare cases, people had harnessed the energy of rivers and uh, the wind uh, to do work like in mills, you know, flour mills, things like that. But the vast majority of people had to get up every day and expend the energy that they could muster with their own bodies. And to the extent they were able to do that, they were able to, to eat and survive and provide shelter for themselves and uh, food for their families. And so one of the greatest things about fossil fuels is it's been able it's been um a boon really to modern society i mean it's allowed the division of labor not just in this country but worldwide to come under you know economic control uh by the market i mean if you didn't have energy there would be no division of labor i mean you wouldn't be able to work as an insurance adjuster for example i mean you just that job wouldn't even exist. Um, so uh, the, the complexity of our economy is due 
in major part to fossil fuels. And the contempt that our government and people that really don't know what they're talking about have for this invaluable um, resource is just, it's staggering really. And, um, and it's not, as I said before, it's not enough just to have energy. You have to be able to produce it in a way that it's usable. Uh, Saifedina Moose talks about this a lot. He, he says, look, energy is, there, there's no shortage of energy. Energy is plentiful on the earth, in the universe. It, it's, it's all around us. It's in the rivers. It's in the wind. It's in the sun. It's in uh, wood and other types of coal, oil. It's in all these things. But it's not enough just to have those things. You have to be able to produce them in a way that you can demand the energy when it's required by you or by a factory or by a group of people or a city or, or what have you. In other words, power, uh, the energy that you can summon during a specific period of time is what's key uh, to the energy conversation. And this is, uh, this is critical to this adjustment that our country's trying to make to wind and solar. Um, the nature of the grid is such that it, it, there's no storage of energy taking place on the grid. And, and because of that, you have to balance what is being used by what is, or what is being demanded by what is being supplied with some factor of safety on top of that. And when you start adding more and more unreliable sources to the grid and pushing out more and more reliable sources, you start having problems. And this is a, a mere inconvenience for people living at home and their TV goes out while they're watching Netflix or something. But uh, a factory that makes some sort of critical product for our economy, uh, this is more than an inconvenience. I, I've talked about chemical plants and refineries, for example. You cannot lose power to those facilities because they have to shut down in a particular way. And if they don't shut down in that particular way, they're unsafe. And so for our modern society, this is a, a very inconvenient uh, reality that we have to deal with. And wind and solar really exacerbate these types of issues. But I, I just want to listen to Thomas Massey and let him ask, really kind of break this down into some really basic situations for Pete Buttigieg. And just let's listen to how Pete Buttigieg responds, and then let's, let's comment on, on his responses. Secretary Buttigieg, I've been driving an electric car for 10 years and I've had solar panels for 15 years and I'm really bullish on technology and the way it could help make our country energy independent or more energy independent. But I'm really alarmed at sort of the naivete of those who are promoting rapid adoption of these technologies with our existing infrastructure. President Biden signed a non-binding executive order stating that 50% of, of vehicles sold in the United States should be electric by 2030. Do you support that? Yes. And he also said that by 20, 2035 that 100% uh, of the federal fleet 
federal government fleet should be electric. Do you support that? Yes. So Thomas Massey, he gets the senator, I mean, the uh, secretary on record here about his position, about the uh, position of the administration with regards to these goals, these targets. Now, 2030 is not that far away. That's less than eight years away. That's seven and a half years away, this being almost August. And, you know, 50% of all vehicles sold in America, you're, you're talking about, you know, I mean, I don't know what the annual sale of cars in America, but it's way in the millions. And 50% of way in the millions is still way in the millions. And, you know, this is, this is uh, while it may be practical, and some would even argue maybe it's not, but to the extent it's practical that people can go out and buy electric vehicles, which, just for the record, they're, they're very expensive, okay? Um, remember, when you, when you uh, something like an SUV, for example, to make that vehicle electric uh, has to have a massive battery in it. I mean, when you, in general, as you move more mass, it takes more energy. I mean, these are just basic laws of physics. And uh, generally speaking, when people move to EVs, they're, they're generally going to a smaller car. So, so, you know, if you're a consumer, you have to, you have to weigh that, right? Can, can I go to a smaller car? You know, what's the size of my family? How do I want to use this car? You know, there's a lot that goes into people's decisions about what kind of car to buy. But just assuming that 50% of all cars could go to electric, you know, what, what would be the impact, right? What, what actually has to happen there? Because, um, yeah, you can go to your charging. There could be a charging station at work, or you could stop on the side of the road at a charging station and pay for electricity, assuming you have enough time to fill your batteries back up, or you can charge your car overnight at home, assuming uh, you have, you know, a, a charging station at home, right? So these are kind of the options. But what do all these options have in common? Well, they all get their energy, all these options that I just mentioned, and every option that would be available to somebody who had an EV, all these options really boil down to, is there enough energy on the electrical grid to supply these, all these new EV car owners enough energy to charge their vehicles every night. And so Thomas Massey, I think, has a very clever way of drilling right down into that point. And without further ado, we're going we're gonna to listen to his line of questioning, and we're going to listen to how Pete Buttigieg or Pete Buttigieg or however you pronounce his name answers these questions. So... Um which uses more electricity? We're talking about residential electricity here. A refrigerator when it's running or an electric car when it's charging in your garage? I would expect a car. Uh, would you say it uses twice as much or 25 times as much? I would think closer to 25 times as much. Yeah. It's, it's actually 50 uh, in, at the instantaneous moment, mm -hmm. but over the course of a year, if I take the numbers from the U.S. Department of Energy about the average household, how many vehicles they own and how far they drive, over the course of a year, uh, an American household would use 25 times as much electricity for their electric car as they would for their refrigerator. Representative Ma Massey has laid this out very simply, 
where just about anybody can understand. But before we go into that, I, I just, you know, on Dave's show, he talked about how this green dream is really more of a religion. You know, it's something that people have to believe in. And I would even take it a step further and say, not only do people have to believe in it, but they have to believe in it even when reality or physics or something like that uh, tells them that it's not currently possible or maybe it can't be possible without um, maybe $50 trillion being spent on the electrical grid to you know triple triple basically the size of the electrical grid the capacity but they just believe it anyway it's like it's like faith right and so what thomas massey is driving at here is you know people don't have 25 refrigerators in their house obviously but if everybody did you know wouldn't this be you know strain on the existing electrical grid and I, it's obvious that that's the answer, right? Yes, that, that would. If you plug a bunch of more things into your house and you don't have any more ability to draw power into your house, then yeah, it's it's probably not going to work. And even if it did work, it'd be tremendously expensive. But I just want you to make note that this obvious thing really is just ignored by Pete Buttigieg. I mean, he really just goes right into the religion of climate change. And, you know, climate change is really in, in the realm of theory, okay? There is no real evidence that shows that CO2 um, is causing the planet to warm. And, that, and if you take it a step further, that man, that man himself human beings are the cause of that. There's, there's zero evidence of that. Yeah, I know people have gone and drilled out ice cores and looked at CO2 over the last 10,000 years and stuff. But here's what we do know. Here, here's what we know. The climate of, of Earth has changed numerous times. We've had numerous ice ages and numerous warming periods long before the internal combustion engine was a feature or a tool that man used on the planet, even even during man's existence here. I mean, man has been on the planet for about 2 million years. The, the internal combustion engine has been around for about 125 years. So there are, you know, way more many years of man being on the planet without an internal combustion engine, and we, we just don't see... Uh, we see the climate changing regardless, okay? So we know the climate changes. And and there are so many things that go into uh, potential reasons why the climate might change. But let me just point out one, okay? Anything, including CO2, okay? I'll, I'll admit that CO2 might be, okay? But there's no evidence that it is. But the reality is anything between the sun and the earth could be causing the planet to warm or to cool or to quote-unquote have us experience climate change. But, you know, CO2 is a very uh, minimal trace gas. I mean, it's 420 parts per million. That means out of a million molecules, only 420 of them are CO2. And so 
what, what that tells you right away is that there are many, many more things that are much more plentiful in the atmosphere than CO2, uh, not the least of which is water vapor in the form of clouds, uh, nitrogen, oxygen, uh, ozone. There are, there are numerous gases along with water vapor in, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere. And in much more plentiful uh, quantities, too. In fact, water vapor itself, what, we all know that water is critical to human life and water vapor exists in the atmosphere many, many more times uh, in, in greater quantity than, than CO2. And, and we know that water vapor uh, refracts light, okay? So, and we know, I've said this before, but we also know that in humid cities, it doesn't cool down at night like it does in dry cities. Like if you go to Colorado in the summertime, it cools down a lot in in Colorado cities because they have they're basically deserts they're dry whereas if you look at Houston Texas it doesn't cool down much at night at all because there's humidity in there that's water vapor humidity is water vapor so there are just there are numerous things in the atmosphere between the sun and the earth that could have some effect on warming or cooling of the planet why the government or why the quote-unquote scientific community is so focused on CO2 is really anybody's guess. I suspect it's because it's, it's, it's got carbon in it, right? Carbon dioxide. And by the way, carbon dioxide is also something that you exhale when you breathe in and out. So what are we talking about here? I mean, we can't have humans breathing out. I mean, are we talking about killing humans? I mean, who knows what the government's really talking about? Um, when they're talking about controlling carbon. But I just I wanted, wanted to give you a little bit of, of that background before you listen to Pete Buttigieg's answer and really ask yourself, is, is, you know, is Pete Buttigieg, is he, is he practicing some sort of religion here? Is this a faith for him, something that he believes regardless of the evidence, regardless of the proof, and I think the answer is, to that question is probably yes. Uh, if they had 100% adoption, if, if and the average family has two vehicles, and this would be if the average family had two electric vehicles, do you think it would strain the grid if everybody plugged in 25 refrigerators in every household? Well, if we didn't make any upgrades to the grid, sure. I mean, if we had yesterday's grid with tomorrow's cars, it's not going to work. I love these politicians. You know, they're they're very witty people. You know, they're very quick on their feet and can respond quickly with these little quippy kind of statements. Uh, well, yeah, you know, if we if we try to use tomorrow's cars on yesterday's grid, well, yeah, of course it's not going to work. Well, okay, but the problem is we don't have tomorrow's grid. We have today's grid, okay? And the type of capacity that Tom, uh, Thomas Massey is talking about, let me, let me put it this way. Let's say every time you drive by a power plant, and I'm sure we've all driven by power plants, right? You see them operating out there, steam coming up from the steam turbine, you know, that's t spinning the generator. Just, just envision this. Everywhere you see a power plant, put three more there, okay? And then everywhere you see one of those fenced-in areas where there's a lot of electrical equipment, and it, they usually have that beauty rock, you know, that white rock on the ground, Put three more of those in. And then everywhere you see 
cables, uh, overhead power cables running to your house, try to envision those having to be replaced with cables that are three or four times as large in diameter just to bring that additional power to your house. And the question then, if you, if you think about that, of course, Pete Buttigieg doesn't go into all that, but that, that you're talking about, I don't know how many trillions of dollars, maybe, maybe 20, 30, $40 trillion of, of, of work that would have to happen to have, to have tomorrow's grid, you know, that he's talking about. So let's just be clear. Tomorrow's grid does not exist. Okay. It, it doesn't exist today. And, it, and it's certainly not going to exist eight years from now. Not, not as big as it is, as complicated it is, as it is, and as massive uh, uh, as it is, oh, and, and pervasive all throughout our nation. Um, he, you're, he's just, he has no concept of the size of the problem that he's trying to just, you know, wish away. With his little, you know, well, yeah, if we just pass a law, we could do it, right? If we just, if we just pass the new Green Deal or whatever it's called, yeah, well, this will this will become possible because now, you know, with just a, a trillion or two trillion dollars, we'll have tomorrow's grid. No, no, no. we're not going to have tomorrow's grid with a trillion or two trillion dollars. You're talking about, you're talking about, if we spent nothing in our economy except money on the grid for the next five years, we might be able to do what he's talking about. So we're just talking about, there's a tremendous undertaking that he's just kind of waltzing over as if it's nothing. And, you know, I think that escapes a lot of people because people don't, they don't realize, you know, the size of the United States, the the, the size of these facilities that we in the expense of these facilities that we've created to give this this modern um, electrical grid, people just talk about it like it's a thing. Like you could just you could just pass a law and, and change it tomorrow. No, no, no. This is this is a much more complicated, much more uh, sophisticated kind of effort that could take the next one hundred years potentially. It's one of the reasons why we believe that infrastructure includes electrical infrastructure and argued for that to be included, as it thankfully was in the bipartisan law. Do you, do you think by 2030, which is when Biden says 50% of uh, cars sold should be electric, do you think the grid will be capable of handling electric cars? It's going to need to be. And I love his initial answer. You know, it's, it's going to need to be. <laughs> okay. You know. And this is typical of politicians. They think that they can just pass laws and things will happen, you know. And what 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 people don't realize is a lot of a lot of times when laws are passed or regulations are passed, what happens is people, you know, in order to contend with those things, they have to do other things. And some things occasionally things are just not possible but generally speaking though that the the idea that oh we can just pass a law and and that's all we need to do and you know the market will figure it out well yeah but there's there there are money constraints there you know uh, there's a lot of constraints there that you're having to deal with and and uh 
you know, those may or may not be able to be accomplished in the period of time that the government has laid out. And I think that's kind of what we're up against. We're working with the Department of Energy every day. We've established a joint office of energy and transportation to map out some of the needs. Obviously, some of this gets outside of my lane. And we've been discussing with, uh, for example, the truck stops that are uh, looking at what their power needs would need to be at an interchange where today uh, they're, you know, they're mainly filling up on gas in order to accommodate that. And then, as you mentioned, a lot of the scenario for this is also residential. I love this because Thomas Massey points out that you would need three times the grid that you have today in order to have 50% of the vehicles um, produced be EV in 2030. And Pete Buttigieg talks about what they're doing with truck stops. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, does he, does he not know that it's, it's not just about the generating uh, infrastructure. It's not the gas stations that have to be converted that's that's a small portion of the energy infrastructure. It's the entire power plants that have to be built in order to produce this additional electricity. It's the entire substations. You know, electricity is generated at very very high voltage, and very very low amperage, so that it can it can travel long distances without a lot of losses. And then you go through these substations, and the the current is boosted and the voltage dropped, and it's there's a couple of different levels of substations and then it comes to your house. But if you build three times as many power plants as we have today, well then you also have to build three times as many substations. And then you have to, the, the wires that, that, that electricity travels over have to be much larger. Let's say they're one inch in diameter now to carry that amount of current. Well, they might have to go to three inches in diameter or something like that. So you got to replace all that. And of course, that weighs more, and so the existing towers may not be sufficient. I mean, there may be this. This is this is a tremendously complicated problem, and he just talks about it like, oh yeah, you know, we we've got a joint task force and we're working with the Department of Energy. All of which, by me, by the way, none of these people know anything about generating electric power. But, you know, thank God the government's on it, right? You know, thank God they've got a task force and, and there's been a law passed. And, I mean, they just, there's just no acknowledgement of how complicated a problem this is. Meanwhile, they're just burning money up there in Washington, D.C., you know, talking about it and propagandizing the public to make them all think that it's possible and it is possible in some with enough time and enough money. Uh, it is possible, um, but at what cost? I mean, if it if we all have to pay fifty percent more in taxes in order to pay for it, and then we have to pay for more expensive energy on top of that, is that worth it? Is that what we want as Americans? Are we so afraid of where the planet is headed, the the health of the planet? that we're willing to give up, say, 50% more of our income in taxes and pay 30 or 40 or 50% more in energy cost just so, you know, maybe the oceans don't rise or maybe, you know, we don't have a degree and a half of warming over the next 100 years. I mean, what, what are these people talking about? Uh, but it's also worth pointing out that uh, while a typical driver uh, who adopts electric is using more electricity, 
at the end of the day, they're using less energy because of the efficiency benefits of getting that energy produced at utilities. The problem is we don't, we don't have the, the capacity to produce that energy. You aptly use the word need. You could say want as well. It, there's needs and wants to make this fantasy work by 2030. But the reality is the capability is not going to be there. In so many ways, the easier part of the problem is to build electric vehicles. The harder part of the problem is building the capacity uh, to generate all this power. It, think of it like this. Right now, the, the global consumption of gasoline is like a billion gallons every five hours or something like that. Think about all the, the energy that is. And then think about how, mu how many power plants would you have to build to transfer, let's just say, half of that energy into electricity. Because, you know, maybe, maybe you're going to continue to use gasoline for trucks or diesel for trucks. So let's just say you're going to convert half of that billion gallons every five hours. Uh, so now let's talk about a billion gallons every 10 hours. That's still a lot of energy that you need to convert to electricity. That, that capacity does not exist, and, and Thomas Massey is absolutely right, and it's not going to exist in the next eight years, seven and a half years. It's just not physically possible. Uh, I don't care if you have a Manhattan project or, uh, you know, like AOC likes to say, this is, our, this is our World War II. You know, I don't care what kind of effort you put into it. It's not going to be enough. It's just simply, I mean, even if you got down to the actual resources like uh, knowledge and manpower, labor to actually do it, and steel and the production capacity required to build the reactors and the boilers and all that stuff. It's just not there. The average uh, household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it will well, be me help less you. Let me help you overall. with that first before we go on, because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be? So if we reach the goal by 2030 that Biden has of a 50% adoption instead of 100% adoption, that means the average household would use twice as much electricity charging one of their cars as they would use for all of the air conditioning that they use for the entire year. This is one of the parts I don't understand. If you're a politician and, and you know that you need people's votes, I mean, how many, how many people out there, how many voters out there Let's say your air conditioning bill, let's say your, your electric bill right now is $300 a month in the summertime. Or let's, let's just say it averages $175, or let's say it averages $200. And all of a sudden, what, what Thomas Massey is saying is it's going to go to at least $400 so that you can charge your car. And if you have two electric cars, you can count on it going to about $600. So who, who is going to want to pay $600 on their electric bill? You know, I mean, this is tremendously expensive addition to your household budget forever.
and it goes up all the time, right? I mean, it's not going to stay at $600. So, you know, this is a, this is a big problem and a big problem for politicians too. I'm not, I'm not sure they really have thought through this. I think they, I think their goal is to scare people so much about the planet that they overlook the cost, but this is going to be a real cost to real people. And many of these people can't afford this. And so, you know, the, the, the types of problems that are going to come from people, you know, having to cut their air conditioner off so they can use their car. And I mean, the, just the, the, the choices people are going to have to make are just on the extreme side. Now, real quick, before I finish up with uh, Thomas Massey and Pete Buttigieg, I want to play um, – Dave Smith had a really good analogy about – he uses war. So he, he kind of uses an analogy um, that involves war to explain how ridiculous this is. And I thought it was really good. It was really creative. And I just want to play it real quick for you and, and then comment on it before we go back to uh, Thomas Massey and Pete Buttigieg. Let's say we were talking about something, uh, something I care about. Okay, so let's say we were talking about war. And I went, well, look, um, I've div- I think nuclear war is okay because I want to, uh, I want to develop um, a nuclear weapon by 2030 that only kills the bad guys. So, like, you drop it on a city, but it doesn't hurt any innocent civilians. It only hurts, like, the billionaire class who's funding their war machine and their political leaders and all the bad guys who we want to get, you know? It just kills them and doesn't kill anybody else. And you were like, wait, but, Dave, I mean, is that possible with nuclear weapons? Because they kill a whole bunch of innocent people when you drop it. And I go, oh, yeah, well, not with yesterday's nuclear weapons, but with tomorrow's nuclear weapons. I think we can do that. It could if and, you believe. Yeah, and you go, but but so you do you think by 2030 you're going to have a nuclear weapon to do this? And I go, well, we'll have to. That's just a great analogy. You know, I, I, Peter Schiff is really the king of analogies, but uh, I got to hand it to Dave. That is a really good one because it just it's it's the it's the perfect reductum absurdum kind of argument. I mean, people know that that's not really possible with nuclear weapons you know you drop a bomb and it only kills the bad guys i mean that's something out of a science fiction movie right but um but that's the that's the way these government guys believe they think they they think the you can just pass a law in congress and you know magical things will happen and you know everything will fall in line and it's just it's it's gotten more and more that way over the last decade or so. I don't, I don't know what it is about, I would say over the last 20 years for sure, Congress has gotten more outlandish with the things and people and voters, you know, oblige them, right? I mean, they, nobody pushes back. People have no limits on what they imagine government can do with taxpayer money and borrowed money. It's, it's, it's really astounding. You know, another thing I was going to bring up is, is just, the market forces like if you if you really put you know 25 refrigerators from every household on the grid what would and you didn't have three times the capacity that you have on the current grid obviously what would happen is there would be no electricity it would it would shut that would crash the grid and probably do a lot of damage to electric generating facilities 
and and so you know it'd be like um, uh, I think the analogy Dave used is what if I said to you, hey, you know, Congress thinks that uh, the com- a computer should only cost a dollar, so we're going to mandate, we're going to pass a law that says. People that make computers, companies that make computers have to make them for a dollar so that consumers can afford them. And so, you know, I mean, you can just envision people in the street going, all right, computers for a dollar. But the reality of that situation is there would just simply be no computers, right? I mean, you can't you can't actually make a computer for a dollar. So what would happen is there would be no production of computers. And that's what we know about price controls. I mean, that's that's just economics 101 when you're dealing with price controls. But this is kind of this whole grid thing is a form of price control. If you if you put if you if you try to overtax the electric grid and shut down uh, the grid for for the type of power we're using today, then it doesn't matter how much money you have to buy power, there is no power to buy. And so I think this is a a very salient point that uh, Dave makes as well. So anyway, let's get back to uh, uh, the congressman and the secretary and finish up their conversation with one another. Do you think this could contribute to rolling uh, blackouts and brownouts in areas of the country where air conditioning is basically considered essential? Not if we prepare. Look, the fact that people who have electric vehicles are going to use more electricity can't be a reason to give up. The idea that America is inferior to the other countries that have figured this out just doesn't sit well with us in administration, and that's why we're investing in a better grid. This is a common tactic that uh, politicians use, and especially politicians on the left. They tend to say, if you push back on something, they tend to say, well, you know, we shouldn't just give up, you know, or... Uh, if you say something, if you challenge some policy that, you know, in theory would benefit children, you know, they come back with, what do you want to just kill all the children? You know, I mean, they have this nihilistic, you know, it's either you want to do what we want to do, or you have this nihilistic view of the world and you don't want to do anything. No, I think, I think Thomas Massey, the point he's trying to make is, of course, we need to do all this, but the market needs to do it. And, uh, it, there needs to be real prices associated with the with the transition, so that uh, there's no dislocations created, and and you know the government's not involved in picking winners and losers, and you know these types of things. But these guys on the left always go back to the nihilistic side of things. They they just they just automatically go to well, you just don't want to do anything, and that's not usually the case. In the time that I have left, let me say. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't prepare. I told you at the beginning of this, I'm bullish on, on this technology, but the, the numbers and the rate of adoption has been developed using political science, not engineering. They're impractical. And if we blindly follow these goals that Biden has set out, it will cause pain and suffering for the middle class. <laughs> <laughs>